0: stopping you, 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 you from becoming a Catholic. Why can't women become priests? one 833 ewtn
1: I don't understand why I have to earn salvation.
0: 1-833-288-3986. What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? You, 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 you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This program is just for you if you are a non-Catholic. That's right, it's a program just for you who have questions about the Catholic faith. Maybe you're not sure how to get those answers. Well, we are here for you, and here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at EWTN.com, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Gabinski, our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. So if you want to ask a question via YouTube, or Facebook. We're streaming on both those platforms. All you have to do is uh, put your question in the comments box. Jeff will uh, then see it. He'll do a little quick copy-paste, put that uh, to us here in the studio, and uh, off we go. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, sir? I'm doing decent, thank you. Haven't had a lunch update in about a week.
2: I'm just, you know, I just lentils and flatbread <clears throat> and a white peach. Kind of the same thing I have every day. White peach sounds pretty good. I love white peaches.
0: So we're going to lead off here with a uh, an email from Emily in Bluffdale, Texas, who says, Dr. Anders, in Ephesians 4.30, St. Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, in whom you were sealed for the last day of redemption. So is this the same unforgivable sin of grieving the Holy Spirit that Jesus speaks of in Mark 3.29? Please explain the differences and similarities when taken in context. Thanks for all you do, Emily, in Bluffdale, Texas.
2: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. No, I, I, don't, I don't think we can consider this to be the, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that's unforgivable. The context here in, in Ephesians 4.30, Paul lists a number of things that Christians ought not to do. Don't let the sun go down on your anger don't steal, uh, don't be idle, help those in need, uh, don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, um, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed on the day of redemption, and don't get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, etc. So I think Mm -hmm. it's more the general sense that that the Holy Spirit would be grieved by our bad behavior, not the sin
0: against the Holy Spirit specifically. Okay. Emily, thanks so much uh, for your email. Glad that you're checking in from Bluffdale, Texas. Here are two questions now from Donald L., and these probably go in our greatest hits category, David. So Donald L. says, number one, why is it okay to call a priest father when it states in Matthew not to call anyone but Godfather? And why do I have to confess my sins to a priest? Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So, Donald, I have a
2: question for you, first of all. When you were growing up, if you had your father with you in your home, I wonder if what you called him. You know, I wonder if you went to the doctor's office and they said, well, you know, what's your father's name? If you said, well, there's no man I call father. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. You know, God's name is the Tetragrammaton from, you know, the book of Exodus. I'm not supposed to write that, you know, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, no, of course you referred to your biological father as your father. Uh, I'm sure you did. I, well, if you didn't, you'd be very highly unusual or dad or papa or something yeah, yeah. of the sort, right? <laughs> Um, so, I've never I've yet to meet the person who who considers this prohibition of Jesus to be a blanket condemnation of calling anybody father. Uh, and uh, in context, I think it's fairly clear that that you know this 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 comes together with Christ's condemnations of those that seek religious office for the sake of some honorific. You mm-hmm. know, who don't you know? He tells the Pharisees, "You pray, make these long prayers on the street corners because you desire to be seen by men." Uh, your condemnation is justly deserved. That sort of thing, right? And so that's the way we understand it. This is a this is a moral maxim about uh, being a respecter of persons. It's not a blanket prohibition on ever using you know the word "pater" in mm. your spoken vocabulary. Yeah, and we don't behave that way in our daily life, uh, and nor does sacred scripture, because there are plenty of other passages in scripture where. Uh, the term father is absolutely used uh, uh, with respect to some reverend uh, religious person. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Abraham is is referred to as Lot's uncle. He's referred to as, uh, as Lot's father in one place. Um, when Elijah is taken up to heaven, Elisha says, uh, my father, my father, uh, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Now, Elijah was not Elisha's biological father, but he was a paternal character to Elijah, his mentor, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, St. Paul says to the Corinthians, I've become your father in Christ, and you are my children. Uh, so this kind of language is throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, and, uh, and so that's how we have to read the teaching of Christ. That this, again, is not some sort of uh, blanket prohibition mm-hmm. on using a particular term, but rather on a spirit uh, that is uh, the regarder of persons. Now, what I believe is being condemned there can just as easily be violated by, say, a Protestant minister who goes by the name of, uh, you know, Brother Joe, right? If Brother Joe exercises his ministerial office in a haughty manner to be seen by men or others— Uh, respect him uh, for the wrong reasons, and there's a kind of uh, maybe cult of personality around Brother Joe that does harm to souls, well, that would fall under the same condemnation every
0: bit as much as a
2: Catholic priest who goes by
0: the term Father. Okay. And the other question, why do I have to confess my sins to a priest?
2: Well, okay, so I take it you're not Catholic. So at one level, I'd say you don't have to. Right? (laughs) At one level, you don't. Because the, the law obliging Catholics to confess to a priest once a year is imposed on Catholics, and you're not one, right? Um, So I guess there's a sense in which you don't have to. Why should you? That's a better question. Why should you? Now, uh, to be clear, Catholics confess their sins to God directly without the mediation of a human priest, and we do it every single day of our lives. Our Lord taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We ask for the forgiveness of sins directly from God every day of our lives. It's part of our spirituality. It's part of our faith. And we believe that those prayers are efficacious, that God can and does, in fact, forgive us when we ask him to. So what what does the sacrament of penance, the sacrament of confession, add to that? Well, it's similar to the other sacraments, whether it be baptism or marriage or ordination or anointing or whatever it might be. Jesus instituted particular rituals, the purpose of that institution I guess we'll have to come to after the break.
0: Yeah, sit tight Donald. We'll uh, continue that in a moment here. We'll also get to John, a first-time caller in Richmond, Virginia, uh, on the phone with a great question here. We've got some uh, lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. Do you have a question for Dr. David Anders? 833-288-3986. it's called a communion on this thursday afternoon here on EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Anders love to talk with you today at 833 288 EWTN that's 833 288 3986 so before the break we were tackling a question from Donald L why do i have to confess my sins to a priest
2: yeah so i began by saying well if he's a non-catholic which i presume he is he's not actually not actually obligated to confess his sins to a priest Uh, But he might want to. He might want to become Catholic and confess his sins to a priest. And he says, well, why might I want to do a thing like that? Well, uh, to begin with, with with confession and with all of the sacraments, God gives us, through the medium of a sacrament, something that he's perfectly capable of giving us apart from a sacrament, and sometimes does grant apart from a sacrament. So the sacraments don't impose some kind of necessity upon God. It's not as if the grace of God were somehow restricted down through this funnel. And if you wanted, say, the grace of forgiveness or the grace of eternal life, that, uh, that the only possible way to get it is through this limitation of God's activity. That, that, that's the wrong way to conceive of it. Um, here's the way the Church thinks of it, and this is the way it, it functions. Uh, you know, before I was Catholic, I used to uh, go to this prayer chapel at my evangelical Christian college and spend time in prayer. And one of the things that I would do is I would pray and ask God to forgive my sins. And, you know, I had a kind of general assurance from Scripture that God here is a penitent heart and will forgive me. But that's all I had. I had this sort of general sense. I didn't have a kind of specific word to me as an individual from God saying, hey, Dave, it's cool, I've got this, you're forgiven. And it would have made a difference to me. It would have made a difference, in the same way that, you know, what if uh, I thought, well, maybe I got Dad mad, and my mother said, oh, I promise you Dad's not mad. Well, I'm, you know, that's fine. I'm relying on that sort of general sense of my father's benevolence, but it would have made all the difference if Dad had come by and said, I'm not mad at you, right? Uh, and, and that's how the sacraments function. They are tangible signs, tangible, audible, visual signs, present to us immediately, applied to me as a specific individual, it's not someone else's confession, it's mine, Mm -hmm. in which someone who is authorized to speak for God, because Christ said, whoever sins you forgive are forgiven to the apostles when he gave them the Holy Spirit, somebody who's authorized by God to speak in his name and has this gift of the Spirit to do this, can say, he doesn't say, hey, Anders, I'm here to tell you that God forgives the penitent heart. He says, I absolve you. He doesn't say, I can assure you that God absolves you. He says, I absolve you, that he himself, the priest, possesses this power of absolution mm-hmm. by grant from God. Now, if I believe that on the authority of Christ, because Christ said he has that authority, that the priest has that authority, then, uh, then I walk away completely persuaded that, not in some general sense, but very specifically, here and now in this context, I have been forgiven. And so there is a psychological benefit to having that tangible point of contact, that's the same with all the sacraments. Christ gives them to us so that he can demonstrate in a nonverbal way something that can also be expressed verbally or propositionally. St. Thomas Aquinas says that the sacraments are protestations of the faith that justifies. You know, you recite the faith in a creed, but you can also apply it in a ritual gesture uh, so that there's a different mode of engagement, and it can touch Mm. you in your affectivity or in your interiority in a way that transcends mere cognitive awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's all the sacraments function that way. But because they come with a promise of divine assistance, they're not bare signs or symbols. They are signs and symbols. Mm-hmm. But they're signs and symbols where we are certain that the thing being signified is actually applied in this moment. So it's it's the sacraments are there to be a help in the life of holiness, an encouragement in the life of holiness not in any way an impediment to the life of holiness. There are a few other benefits to confession as well. One of them is, one of the conditions for making a good confession is you have to examine your conscience. Now, how often do you do that if you don't have the practice of regular confession? You sit down and sort of rigorously consult your conscience and Mm -hmm. figure out, okay, what's going right, what's going wrong in my Uh life? Uh That by itself is a helpful practice. Then there is this tremendous act of humility of making confession to another human being. That's embarrassing. And I can tell you from personal experience, it can be a motive not to sin. Definitely. Like, you know, I don't want to do this. I mean, if for no other reason that I don't have to go tell Father that I did that thing. Yep. It's a, it can be a motive not to sin. Uh, it also is, uh, is contrary to the vice, to the, uh, to the sin of pride. Uh, and so there are, there are all kinds of benefits that attach to the practice None of which would be available to me in another form. Like I have to have them here. It doesn't mean that God can't forgive me someplace else, but He created this. Sac- it was the first thing Jesus did when He rose from the dead, because He knew that there were there were specific benefits I could derive that I couldn't get outside the sacrament.
0: Appreciate that, uh, Donald. Thank you so much uh, for your email. Uh, glad to answer both of those questions for you here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. I saw a. Uh coffee mug for sale on social media. In big letters, it said, don't make me have to go to confession. <laughs> I love that. Hey, there's a new book available now from EWTN Publishing you may want to check out. And I absolutely love the artwork on this. Good Night, Jesus, a children's bedtime story by Kate Snyder, illustrated by Anna Morelli. This delightful book helps Children reflect on God's blessings in their lives. The captivating images convey the importance of faith and family, friends and fun, and a personal relationship with Jesus. Hey, check it out. Good night, Jesus, a children's bedtime story now available from EWTN Publishing. You can get it at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic. EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin today with John, a first-time caller in Richmond, Virginia, listening on YouTube. Hey, John, what's on your mind today, sir?
1: Thank you, guys, and peace be with you. I have two questions coming out of First um, Kings or First Samuel, chapter sixteen, and just curious for some perspective on uh, first in verses fifteen and sixteen. They state that as it concerns Saul, an evil spirit was sent from God or from the Lord in verse sixteen. And I'm just curious as to you know what what does that mean, and then secondly. Is there any sort of indication that David knew of the reason for his anointing? And I'll go ahead and hang out. Thank you, guys.
2: Sure. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So I, I am going to give you my personal opinion, uh, which, you know, that in $3 will buy you a cup of coffee, <laughs> right? There's nothing authoritative about my point of view. And I, you know, if I had more time, if I had lead time on this question, I would I would go dig up some patristic commentaries. I'd love to know what St. Thomas says about this passage or what St. Augustine says about this passage. And I was actually trying to do that in the 30 seconds I had to get ready, and I, <laughs> I, I didn't have time to, to get what I wanted to look for. So this is, this is not authoritative. This is not some doctor of the Church. This is just Andrews shooting from the hip, given my best judgment. Um, and right off the bat, one thing that seems clear to me, is that we should not regard this as a demon, I don't think, okay? And for a lot of reasons, one of which is that it's, we read that it was sent from God. Well, you know, God is not in the business of sending demons, first of all. Secondly, it responds to music. <clears throat> so, you know, Saul gets a bit out of sorts, David plays the harp, Saul feels better, the quote-unquote evil spirit goes away. That's yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess if you heard me play the harp, maybe all kinds of people would go running, you know. But I mean, generally speaking, that that's not our conception of, of uh of demonic possession. It it you know it doesn't doesn't run from the sound of a of a melodious harp, uh-huh. you know. So I, I I think really we're talking about a psychological state that comes upon Saul. Uh, maybe Saul is bipolar. Uh, maybe Saul has a borderline personality disorder. Uh, you know, maybe Saul has some other condition where he's Prone to fly off the handle and get violent, maybe he's got oppositional defiance disorder, Ooh, you know, or okay. something of that sort. And uh, and 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 this is just a psychological condition that that can be mollified through some distraction. That doesn't, to me, seem like a demonic spirit. And uh, you know, in ascribing it to God, I believe that the the author of First Samuel is definitely crafting a narrative here, wherein God is directing the course of the Israelite monarchy, to set things up for David's reign, right? And so I think everything, in a certain extent, is ascribed to the providence of God here. And because this is instrumental in uh, in arranging things for David's ascension to the throne, I think he, he makes a note here, makes sort of an editorial remark, that this is a work of divine providence, that this is setting things up for for David's ascension. That, that's my personal take on it. Uh, I'm sure you'd find some other interesting things in the
0: commentaries. Well, there you go. John, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line mm. for you and right did now. David, oh, yeah, yeah. Did David know why God picked him?
2: Uh, well, Samuel says of David that God looks on the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. So if he said that within David's hearing, I suppose David might infer, hey, must be something good about my
0: heart, <laughs> w- would would that he had kept it his whole life. Yeah, for sure. Appreciate your call there, John. One line open right now for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this uh, Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. Let's go now to John, a first-time caller in New Jersey, listening on the great domestic church media. Hey, John, what's on your mind today, sir?
1: Hey, thanks for taking my call. I was just curious, because I noticed a lot of my Protestant friends are vehemently pro-Israel, and it's like a main point of their faith. I was curious what the Catholic point of view on that is. Yeah, thank you
2: very much. I really appreciate that. So so we're talking here about a certain kind of Zionism. Zionism, of course, is a 19th century movement among Jews to return to the ancestral homeland and to establish a Jewish state. In uh, in what is today Israel Palestine, yeah. mm-hmm. um, Zionism comes in both secular and religious forms. Uh, secular Zionism and many of the early Zionists were secular Jews. Uh, simply mm-hmm. looks at realistically at what was going on in Europe in the late 19th, early 20th century, and says, "Hey, you know, we're not we're not safe uh, anywhere in the world unless we have our own physical state. So let's let's set up shop someplace and mm-hmm. make a state where people can't harass us and." Early Zionists were not necessarily tied to the land, the historic land of Israel. <clears throat> they they looked at other alternatives, other other places in the world where we could set up a, a Jewish homeland. But uh, the attachment to history and so forth and culture was just too great, and so the Holy Land uh, won out. And yeah. and of course they benefited from the end of World War One and, and uh, the instability um, with the collapse of the of the of the Ottoman Empire and so forth to to do that. And it was uh, it was a hard won battle, and they they set it up, and it's still not secure to this day, of course. There are a lot of people Mm. who want to do away with the state of Israel, and it has a lot of bad press. So that's that's Zionism. There are those who were religious Zionists who thought, you know, that Israel had, excuse me, I should say, the Jews had some sort of divine mandate to reclaim that particular territory, and Mm -hmm. that's, of course, a more controversial claim. Now, historically, Catholicism has rejected, uh, or Catholics, I should say, have rejected the claims of religious Zionism. And uh, uh, has not supported that idea that that somehow um, uh, the Jewish people have some sort of divine mandate to occupy this this piece of land, and that the that the destiny of the nation state of Israel is somehow tied um, ineluctably to the fate of the world and to the second coming of Christ. Uh, it's definitely not been the historic Catholic point of view at all. Uh, in fact, quite the contrary. Uh, the, if, if you were going to draw a theological interpretation from the nation of Israel, a more traditional view would be that the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD signaled um, the end of that covenant and its significance for salvation history. And so for a long time, there were Catholic interpreters that viewed the destruction of the temple, not its rebuilding, as the, uh, as the key eschatological mm. event. Okay, now... Uh, for, for very different reasons, modern Protestantism, and not all Protestants by any stretch of the imagination, but yeah. typically fundamentalist Protestants beginning mm-hmm. in the 19th century and really getting kicking in the 20th, uh, bought into their own version of religious Zionism uh, because of their peculiar interpretations of the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. And they came to believe that the fate of the nation-state of Israel was deeply tied to the second coming of Christ, which they desire to hasten. And, uh, and there are Catholic religious Zionists, but they are a minority, um, and uh, in, in my humble opinion, personally, uh, it seems to me that that kind of Protestant religious Zionism is extraordinarily naive and leads to a kind of uncritical acceptance. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything here, plus or, uh, or negatively or positively, about the State of Israel or its administration. But no government, whether it be the American government, or the Israeli government, or the Jordanian government, or the Saudi Arabian government, or whatever, what have you, no government should be given a pass uh, simply by claiming divine mandate. Uh, Pope Benedict said in his address uh, at Regensburg that—no, um, I'm sorry, it was to the Bundestag in Germany—that Christianity is distinguished by not believing in a juridical order imposed by Revelation and that's very much the islamic view that god has sort of written out a legal code and said you must impose this on civil society and that's part of your religious duty and christianity has historically not taken that view that there's no there's no civil polity demanded by divine revelation that we we unthinkingly defend at all costs no we we subject any government and every government to, to the demands of natural law and the dignity of persons and the rights of, of men and women, and that would be the Israeli government as much as any, as any other. And, um, and that's the way we ought to approach it. And, you know, from a, from a uh, sort of a realpolitik point of view in terms of international diplomacy, I mean, I'll be darned if anybody knows how to f- solve the conundrum in the Middle East, uh, but, uh, but knee-jerk religious Zionism is not the way forward, I can tell you that.
0: Is that helpful for you, John?
1: Yeah, I was just curious if the Pope has said anything specifically on the topic of Israel today.
0: Um, I am not. Um,
2: I'm not aware of anything Pope Francis has said, and I guarantee you that the that the Vatican State Department has a diplomatic corps that's deeply concerned about affairs in the Middle East. But they're 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 concerned about. the the citizens of Israel, Jewish and non-Jewish, and they're also concerned about Palestinians and their rights and dignity as well. And they're, like everybody else in the world, trying to find a just solution forward that can bring parties to peace.
0: Let's all pray for that. John, thanks so much uh, for your call. In a moment, Jerry in Independence, Ohio. Marie in Omaha, Nebraska. Also, Russ in Springfield, Missouri. Lots more straight ahead on this edition of Call to Communion on EWTN. Do stay with us. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. We have a couple of lines open for you. If you call right now, you can hopefully get on today's show at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Charles is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Charles says, What if a Protestant convert thought he was baptized validly many years ago? But without him or the Church knowing it, he never was. But he already got confirmed and everything. What would uh, what would that mean? Uh, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the
2: question. So, um, you know, Monsignor Charles Pope was asked a question like this one time, and I like the way he responded. He said, God isn't calling technical fouls. <laughs> <laughs> right? Love it. You know, the, the, we are concerned about the validity of a sacrament. Uh, because Mm -hmm. we need an objective way to know whether or not a sacrament has genuinely been offered, right? And so the Church, in its canon law, is very specific in what defines a valid sacrament. Um, But it's not as though, in the absence of a valid sacrament, that God is somehow incapable of extending grace to a soul. Sure. And the sacraments are there not for God's benefit. It's not like, you know, God's like, well, I can reach... You know, all the way to, to, to Tom's heart, but I'm about six inches inches short, you know, and I need I need a priest to reach the other six inches. That, that that's that's a completely wrong way of conceptualizing it. The sacraments are there not to help God get to us, but to help us get to God by making grace available in a form that is visible, audible, tangible, so that it can touch us in our minds, in our wills, in our affectivity, in our memory and we can come to more deeply incorporate and assimilate that grace into our life by reflecting on the sign value of that sacrament. So, you know, having been baptized, the soul can go the rest of their life and say, hey, I was baptized. I know I was baptized. On that day, I was made a member of Christ. Uh, The same way, you leave the confessional, you know, know, I'm really feeling guilty about what I did last Wednesday, but hey, you know, I went to confession the following Friday. I know I'm good with God. I'm going to rest in the assurance of that confession and not go back in my mind to that thing that I did on Wednesday that I've already been forgiven for. That, that's why the sacraments are there, to give us confidence and hope and courage and help and grace in our, in our path to God. Um, but there is an expression that you will sometimes find applied to these situations where a valid sacrament was not given and no one knew about it, and it's no one's fault. Deus providebit. That's the Latin that means God will provide. So when we've done in good faith what we think we're supposed to do, Uh, If there is some human error in there, we trust in the providence and the mercy of God. God will provide.
0: Yes, indeed. And uh, Charles, thanks so much for watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Call to Communion here on EWTN In Progress. Let's go now to uh, Jerry in Independence, Ohio, listening on the great AM 1260, The Rock. Hey there, Jerry. What's on your mind today, sir?
1: Yeah, hey there, uh, Dr. Anders. Thank you very much for taking my call here, and I enjoy listening to your show.
2: Um, I want to know if a Protestant were to become possessed by a demon, would they need to uh, receive help from the Catholic Church and from a priest, or does the Protestant Church have their own means of exercising demons? Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate the question. So, yes and yes is the answer to your question. Yes, he would need help from a Catholic priest, and yes, Protestants have their own way of dealing with this. Um, in the Catholic Church, only a designated exorcist has the right to perform the rite of exorcism. A normal priest can't do it. A layperson certainly cannot do it. It's a task that's been delegated to a specific priest. And why? Why does the Church delegate this to specific individuals? Well, uh, it's a serious job. It's a risky job. Uh, there's some dangers with the job. It requires a person of, of, of probity and holiness and discretion, um, and so you don't want to hand it out willy-nilly to any old, you know, Tom, Dick, or Harry. Uh, and uh, and but with that with that grant of authority comes jurisdiction. Like the bishop is has is real power, has real authority over the human and uh, and uh, spiritual world, and and the demons are forced. To respect that jurisdiction. They know the difference between someone who is authorized by the Church to act in Christ's name and someone who does not. And this is all anecdotal, of course, but if you talk to exorcists, they will give you testimonies of this kind of thing, and you know, someone who is dealing with a demoniac will acquire faculties from the bishop, and it's like the game-changer in, 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 in this confrontation, right? So it makes a difference and for those reasons uh, a protestant who w- would become demon possessed would benefit greatly from seeking the the f- ministries of a uh, of a of an authorized catholic exorcist with faculties from his bishop and in fact uh, that famous movie uh, the exorcist which is a lot of hoopla and sensationalism is actually based on a real story mm. and in the real story the family involved were lutherans i did not know, they know that they were lutherans and they sought out they had been to the lutheran church and not gotten any help and they sought the services of a catholic priest and uh and and they were they were helped they were helped and the demoniac involved grew up and and actually uh I think it was a boy in real life and named his uh, son michael as i recall wow. after saint michael the archangel who was who was invoked in that particular rite okay um, so they benefited from the services of the Catholic Church, and it actually led, I believe, to their eventual conversion, if memory serves me correct. All right, now, does that mean that it is impossible for anyone other than a Catholic priest to, to expel a demon in Christ's name? No, that's, that's not impossible, and, and Scripture suggests that it's not impossible, uh, but dangerous, you know, there are—the there are disciples at one point say to Christ, well, you know, we saw this guy who was driving out demons in your name, but he wasn't one of us. And Jesus—they don't deny that he was effective. Yeah. And Jesus said, well, you know, leave him alone. No, don't bother him. He doesn't bother us. Um, but there's another passage in Acts where uh, there was a demoniac, and there were some uh, Jews at the time who attempted to cast out the demon— in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. That's what they said. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, we command you to leave. Okay. And the demoniac responded, Well, Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard of, but who the heck are you? And then <laughs> proceeded to beat them, and they ran naked from the room, right? Wow. So he didn't. they didn't have any jurisdiction. The demoniac knew that and didn't respect what they had to say. So
0: possible, dangerous there you go Jerry thanks so much for your call it's called communion here on EWTN going now to Omaha to talk with Marie listening on the great spirit Catholic radio hi Marie what's on your mind today
1: hi there I got two questions for you one is my child is a fallen away Catholic who is marrying a fallen away Lutheran in a few years my question is I am a Catholic and can I, as a Catholic parent, attend their wedding validly? And number two, is there recommendations or suggestions to a fallaway Catholic on why it would behoove them to get married in the Catholic Church, and to, possibly, and to seek out that Earl of Great price? Yeah, but, you
2: know, thanks. I, I really appreciate the question. So, you know, uh, in Catholic canon law, a Catholic is allowed to marry a Lutheran. There's nothing that prevents that from happening validly. Um, but under normal circumstances, the Catholic is bound by canon law to have that marriage in a Catholic Church. Now, that can be dispensed. There are situations when a Catholic can get married outside of the Church with the bishop's permission and still have a valid marriage. Now, any marriage between two Christians, could be two Lutherans, to be two Catholics, could be a Catholic and a Lutheran, any marriage between two baptized Christians, if the marriage is valid, it is also automatically sacramental. And, and that comes at a great benefit, because the sacrament is accompanied by grace, grace that uh, enables us to live that state of life worthily. And the marriage state of life is difficult, it comes with many challenges, um, as, as a sacrament, a uh, Christian marriage is a sign of God's love for the Church, of Christ's love for the Church. Uh, and we manifest this in our own families by raising up a communion, a community, namely parents and children, uh, to witness God's love to the world, and then in that way we're able to sanctify ourselves, our kids, and those, those uh, of our uh, neighbors that we come into contact with, and those that know our family, and so forth. So it's a, it's a state of life in the Church that has tremendous benefits, for those involved and for those outside the church as well. Mm. Uh, and we need that grace to do it well. Now, your question is, how can I persuade my non-practicing son and his non-practicing Lutheran fiancé of this fact? Well, that that's, that's a more difficult question, all right? Because, first of all, the Lutherans themselves don't believe in the sacrament of matrimony at all. They, they believe in matrimony, they just don't think it's sacramental. They don't think there's any specific grace attached to matrimony as a sacrament. Um, if a if a person is a baptized Catholic who's not practicing, I would say the question of the sacramentality or validity of marriage is important, but it's lower on the hierarchy of truths than the question of the truth or goodness of Catholicism itself, right? And so, uh, I would my own my own view would be that it's more important that a fallen away Catholic consider the reason he should be practicing his Catholic faith at all uh, before he deals with the question of the sacramentality of marriage specifically. Now, I will say this, though. A lot of Catholic moms have used the old Catholic mom guilt trip (laughs) to get the non-practicing son to marry in the Catholic Church just to pacify old mom. Now, that, that will check a box, to be sure, but it may not achieve what you want to achieve at the end of the day. Now, sometimes that does. Sometimes, you know, going through marriage preparation with a Catholic priest, they, they're forced to confront questions about themselves and the relationship they hadn't thought of before, and it, might, it may prompt a genuine genuine conversion. But, of course, it may also just be checking a box to get Mom off her backs, and we're going to go back to doing what we want to do. Um, so, you know, my, my counsel would be, you're in this for the long haul, and you can, you can win the battle and lose the war or you can lose the battle and win the war. And our ultimate goal is to change their attitude towards the church and so that they regard it as a good thing in their lives that would be a great benefit to them. And most of the time when people walk away from the Catholic Church, it's because they haven't the idea of the Catholic Church as an officious, legalistic, impersonal institution that doesn't regard them as individuals or persons of any value and unfortunately the number of people who've had that kind of impersonal experience in the Church is mammoth, and they typically fill the pews at non-Catholic churches. The best way to confront that is not to reinforce the stereotype, right? So uh, leading with, well, this is against canon law, is probably a bad move for someone who has rejected the Catholic Church because they're fed up to their teeth with things like, this is against canon law, Mm -hmm. right? And so being a loving, consistent, faithful, virtuous, helpful presence in their life is probably going to be more use in the long run than, uh, than, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's of canon law regarding the validity of their marriage. Now, from the Church's point of view, this is going to be an invalid marriage. And so your next question, can you in good conscience attend? And uh, I will not presume to answer that question for you because it is your conscience that must make the decision. Um, but I can say that I think this is a question of prudential judgment on your part about how you think you will ultimately do the most good to draw them back to the Church and to faith. And, and, uh, and you know, is it a, are you going to win the battle and lose the war, or lose the battle and win the war? And that's really something you have to discern in your own relationship. Is that helpful for you, Marie?
1: Yeah, I hit the nail on the head in a lot of places. Thank
0: you so much. Thank you. You are most welcome. Appreciate your call from Omaha. Call to communion here on EWTN. We're a big believers in the rosary around here. That's why we air it twice a day, every day, on EWTN Radio. Check it out, 5.30 a.m. Eastern with Mother Angelica. And in the evening at uh, 9.30 p.m., with Father Benedict Groeschel with some uh, beautiful music there from Simonetta. The Rosary twice a day here on EWTN Radio. Do check it out. Here now, Russ, a first time caller in Springfield, Missouri, listening on the great Catholic Radio Network. Hey Russ, what's on your mind today?
1: Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm a non-Catholic, but I enjoy listening to EWTN and specifically your show. Uh, I enjoy hearing what the church teaches and how it differs from kind of what I believe. Uh, my question is about Peter. Uh, The Church teaches that Jesus, you know, made him the rock and said, upon this rock I'll build my church, Uh, and then that later, uh, later the uh, disciples are arguing amongst themselves on who is the greatest. So why would they be arguing that if if they heard what Jesus, you know, uh, told Peter?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, I can think of my own childhood and instances where maybe my parents told me that I had to be subject to some other person, maybe my older brother, or maybe a babysitter, or maybe a teacher, that I didn't think much of. Uh, Could I see myself in that situation saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, (laughs) I'm just as good as you, I don't have to listen to you, mom said you did oh, yeah, well, I saw what you were doing. I mean, that, that just strikes me as a very normal human response to, to authority that I may not want to submit to. There are also different ways in which a person could conceive of themselves as being greater. Um, and it's not obvious to me that the apostles were immediately privy to Christ's revelation to St. Peter. So perhaps Peter... You know, kept this in his heart, as it were, for a while, and the apostles didn't immediately know. Perhaps the new t- the the gospels chronology uh, is off. I mean, there's no guarantee. There's no ne- there's no necessity in holding the. I think personally, the, the 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 chronology of the gospels as being historical. I think that there's an arrangement of material here for literary purposes um, that suits the author's uh, priorities. So I mean, I can come up with all kinds of reasons why. Uh, the apostles would be arguing about who's the greatest, in spite of the fact that, that Jesus had named uh, St. Peter as the rock, in which he would build the church's foundation. And for that matter, when it really comes to who's first in heaven, uh, as a Catholic, I don't think Peter's first. I mean, Christ is first, and, and among creatures, among creatures, it would be the Blessed Virgin Mary,
0: who is orders of magnitude ahead of Peter. That's how it works. Uh, Russ, thanks so much for your call. Appreciate that. Here is John in Vancouver, Washington, listening on the great Modern Day Radio. Hello, John. What's on your mind today, sir?
1: Hello. Uh, Thank you both for my uh, continuing education as a cradle Catholic, and now I'm approaching 80, and um, wow, faith-seeking understanding, and I'm getting more and more understanding, which is... Really, a uh, an asset to me personally. So, this question has sort of been—I know it's been raised more than once. I've been listening for a long time. The old, uh, the old, uh, a question about: Are you giving scandal by attending a wedding? And specifically, I had relatives from the East Coast visiting in the last few days. They're they're cradle Catholics. They're more traditional than I am, I would say, uh, uh, and uh, they're determined to go to uh, the gay marriage of the daughter of one of their longtime friends. And uh, we were talking about it, you know, and he didn't want to hear from me about the, the possibility of, of giving scandal or actually uh, contradicting the Church's t- teaching about what marriage is and what it isn't. And I've heard you talk about the whole idea of what will do the most good, but is there any good uh, for a Long-standing, well-known Catholic couple, and sort of on the traditional end, to be publicly displaying their approval for um, a marriage between two women.
2: Yeah, I appreciate the question. So let's let's say first off off the bat <clears throat> that there it is a metaphysical impossibility for two women to marry. It's a metaphysical impossibility. Because marriage is, just is, the kind of union naturally fulfilled in the procreation of children. And it's the institution that is in public recognition of that fact, whereby society lends its support and sanction to this particular kind of coupling for the sake of raising a family and replenishing the civilization. And it is... It is uh, it is metaphysically impossible for two women or two men to achieve that kind of union. It's not. It's, I mean, you might as well take a you know tennis players and say we're now going to call this marriage because you know we really value tennis players and we think that you know that hitting the ball back and forth over the net, man, that is just that is the stuff. And as a society, we want to put all of our sanction and. And, uh, and blessing behind that, so we're just going to call that marriage. I mean, you can like tennis all you want. Maybe maybe you want to elevate it to first place in your culture. That's fine. You can do that. It's your culture. You do what you want with it. We did that here in Alabama with football. Right? <laughs> I mean, like it's, you know, I'm, people always, I'm, I tell people, you know why Alabama has the greatest football team in the world? It's one reason only. You get what you pay for. <laughs> right.
0: If we, if we wanted
2: the world's greatest engineering school, we could have that. If we wanted to have, uh, you know, the world's greatest theological institute, we could have that. But we want the world's greatest football team, so we have that because we pay for it. We pay for it. And um, and uh, and I, I would, you know, arguably, to some people, football is more important than marriage. I heard a story, I don't know if it's true or not, that— um, There was a now-deceased, extremely celebrated um, Alabama football coach, whose name is known to everyone, Okay, who uh, told his wife when he married her, here are the ground rules. Football will always come first. Wow. Right? But he knew the difference between football and marriage. Yes. Right? Uh, The Greeks, who were definitely not, you know, what modern people would call homophobes, the, the the Greeks were tremendously favorable towards homoerotic relationships and pederasty in particular. Mm. If you've ever read the dialogues of Plato, you know, it's just filled with descriptions of—not uh, graphic descriptions, but cultural references to pederasty, mm-hmm. which seems to have been valued by them ahead of marriage. I mean, you don't find descriptions of heterosexual marriage in the works of Plato— Uh, with the same kind of tenderness or respect or the same—anywhere close to the same sort of cultural resonance or ethos that they describe pederasty. And yet, even in a culture like that, the Greeks never thought for one second to call pederasty marriage. Because they knew there was a fundamental difference. Marriage was that institution that exists for the replenishment of society by the coupling of men and women for the sake of raising a family— that that's what marriage is, and and we value this other thing more, but it ain't marriage, right? And and so you know our culture has decided that that it wants to value, um, you know, homoerotic coupling. Um, and you know, like do that like the Greeks did it, but with this added twist that we're now going to call that marriage. And uh, and it's a trick of language. Uh, but it but it, it you know but but not of but not of the underlying reality. And so th- they, it's not marriage. I mean, call it that. It's not marriage. And that's where I think this is fundamentally different from, say, the invalid wedding of a man and a woman. Because when a man and woman marry invalidly, like, say, a Catholic marries outside of the Church, you know, mm-hmm. without canonical form, mm-hmm. he is at least attempting to contract the kind of union which, if valid would be the sort of thing that the Catholic Church would call marriage. Right. And, and so there is a kind of hope for the reconciliation of that union as a union to the Church and to canonical validity. Whereas one cannot have that kind of expectation with respect to any form of homoerotic coupling.
0: Okay. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, John, thank you so much uh, for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Lynn is watching us today on YouTube. Lynn says, hey, Dr. Anders, could you please explain what the phrase world without end actually means? It is said throughout the extraordinary form of the Mass. I'm just wondering the history of the phrase. Thanks, Lynn.
2: Yeah, it is a very infelicitous, in my judgment, infelicitous translation of the Latin phrase in saecula saeculorum. Which, which Latin phrase, I think, would be better translated forever and ever. Okay. okay. Because people hear world without end. And the reason why is that a seculum in Latin can mean a lot of things, one of which is a world or an age, uh, different ways to render it. And whereas the word world in the English language we, we're typically thinking like the globe, yeah, you know, sure.
1: and,
0: and that's not what's in view. We're not talking about, the, you know, the, the eternal globe. Okay. Uh, Lynn, thanks for watching us on YouTube. This one from Anne. Of course, we don't know the hour or the day, but if you read the sign of the times, would you agree many of them point to the second coming, including Our Lady of Fatima saying the final battle will be about marriage and the family?
2: Well, here's the problem, and I appreciate the question. Here's the problem. Every one of the signs of the end of the age have been visible since Christ's ascension. Oh. Every one of them. And that's why apocalypticists, those that believe in the imminent return of Christ, mm-hmm. have been proclaiming that we are in the last days for 2000 years. And so what I think history and scripture have taught me mm-hmm. is that well, you know, we're in the we're in the last days. But we might also be in the early church because 2,000 years ago they were also in the last days. Yep, St. Paul spoke of his own era as the age upon is the, the, the generation upon whom the end of the ages had come. So you know uh, the, the, the last age might like might, might last a
0: hundred thousand years. Who knows? And thanks so much uh, for your email. Dr. David Anders, great show. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio, 2 p.m. for our live broadcast, 2 p.m. Eastern, that is, with an encore of that same show at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime at EWTN.com forward slash radio. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow, hopefully, right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.